Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Redemption Tempe, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. My name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am joined by Jim, one of the other pastors. Good to have you on again, Jim. Thanks, man. This week, we are talking about the provision. So we are in Exodus 15, uh, verse 22 through the end of chapter 17, and we see God really miraculously providing for the Israelites as they start this journey. Um, they have left Egypt and and they are headed towards the promised land and uh, they get hungry and God provides them manna, bread that comes miraculously from heaven and they get thirsty and they need clean water and he instructs Moses to strike a rock and water comes out of the rock for the people. Um, so we really see God giving um, and, and meeting the needs of his people as they journey um, in the desert here. And and so the, the title of this sermon was The Provision. Um, and today on the podcast, we're going to hear uh, an interview that you did with a guy named Tom Nelson. So yep. um, what I want to ask you two questions here is tell us a, lo- a little bit more about who Tom Nelson is, um, and then tell us how this interview really ties into the provision, this idea of God providing for his people. Sure. So Tom Nelson, he's a pastor in Kansas City. Uh, he's a guy who I have a ton of admiration for, a respect for. He's written books that have really shaped our church, uh, such as uh, Work Matters. Mm-hmm. He's also started an organization called Made to Flourish, which uh, I play a role in. And he is uh, a, a very wise guy when it comes to uh, economic wisdom and actually deriving economic wisdom from scripture. And one of the things that is really important about what he does and why we're interviewing him is he's written this book called The Economics of Neighborly Love. And it's all about how God provides for our neighbor through the work of God's people. And as we've kind of uh, explored Exodus, one of the things I've heard people say is how crazy it would be if you were there and you saw manna uh, God providing this miraculous food that, you know, appears out of nowhere and how cool that would be and how much we you would just see and experience God's provision. And what strikes me about that is God is just as faithfully, just as miraculously providing for people today, but he's even doing it with this posture of hospitality mm-hmm. to where he's not just saying, I'm going to just do it, but he's actually inviting human fruitfulness into his means of provision. And it reminds me of the the Martin Luther quote uh, that says that when we pray for our daily bread, God answers that prayer. This is, I'm paraphrasing, not by making like biscuits fall from the sky and like pumpernickel magically appearing and those sorts of things. But he provides our daily bread by calling someone to be a farmer to grow the wheat, a miller to mill the wheat, uh, someone to uh, have a store where it's sold. And through the whole economic workings of multiple people, literally sometimes thousands of people, he provides for us our daily bread. And so I thought it would be important if we are thinking about God the provider, we would think this week about how God provides uh, the daily bread for many people through the work of our hands. That's good. Yeah. Tom Nelson has has written, like you said, a few books. And specifically, I remember when my wife and I were doing campus ministry, Work Matters was very uh, foundational for a lot of our seniors mm-hmm. as they were getting ready to enter the workforce and not thinking about their first job out of college is just like a stepping stone, but like how could they really express their their gifts and talents and abilities 
wherever they're at. Um, and so this idea, I think, is really applicable to where we're at today, just in his the book that, that you guys will be mostly talking about, and talking about how we as Christians are part of the manna, essentially, mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways, and vice versa, other people that God puts in our communities um, in providing for us and the, our neighbors and being able to love them really directly. So looking forward to hearing this, this interview that you guys did. Uh, let's go ahead and listen to that now. So I'm here with Tom Nelson, and it is a gift to interview Tom Nelson because his influence and his work has been ricocheting around the Phoenix area through his book, Work Matters. But today we get to dive in, ask some questions to Tom about his life, and really highlight this uh, newer book that he has, The Economics of Neighborly Love. Tom, it is good to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being on here. Jim, it's a really delight to be with you today. Thank you. So why don't we launch in and just hear a bit about yourself? What would be the short bio, the short story of Tom Nelson's life? Yeah, the best part of my bio is my bride, Liz, and I just celebrated our 37th anniversary. Congratulations. Yes, Jim, she's a woman of great long suffering. Um, (laughs) But uh, I think that's, again, the sweetest part of life uh, is uh, growing together and with the challenge and joy. So Liz and I have been married 37 years. We have two wonderful uh, grown children, no grandchildren yet, but we have a dog named Harley. So our our empty nest is a big golden doodle, about 90 pounds that uh, follows us everywhere. So yeah, that's my current life. And I I just love who I get to be with. And I have a dual role. I get to serve as a senior pastor of Christ Community, a church that I've been involved in since its inception 30 years. I've had the joy of serving a remarkable congregation in Kansas City. And then I also have the delight, as you know, of serving a newer organization nationally called Made to Flourish. So both of those areas are important for me, and that's how I spend most of my time. I get a little vacation in now and then, and uh, some fun things in my life as well, and travel, but that's mainly what my life is about, and I'm I'm very grateful to be with you and to serve and to get to do many things that I just never imagined I'd have the privilege of doing. So I'm very grateful for the life God has given me and all his favor. Yeah, what a gift. Well, um, let's start off with a few rapid-fire questions so that people can get to know you a little bit. So first one that we typically ask is outside of the Bible, what has been the most influential formative book in your life? This is a hard question to answer for someone who loves all kinds of books. I would say maybe The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wow. Yeah. Why that one? It was so formative to me as a teenager, and it's certainly profoundly formed my understanding of the Christian life. Um, So I guess because it was an early formational aspect, me and has continued in its wisdom throughout my life. It's one of my tops. It's really hard to say one, Jim. You know that. No, totally, totally. <laughs> but, but if yeah. you put me in the corner today, it's the yeah. discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Absolutely. How about the most influential relationship outside of family? And I know this is a hard one too. Well, this is a hard one, but this is easier for me. It's Dallas Willard. Really? Yes. I had the great yeah. joy of spending time with Dallas for several years in different places in his writing, his life. Uh, he was in our home, came to our congregation several times. I, mean, I would say Dallas Willard, number one. Great. And then what is a physical location, a place, whether it be a city, a building, a neighborhood that has helped make you who you are? Well, I'm a country boy, uh, so it have to be deeply tied to nature. And I would say in the last few years, it's probably the park near my home that I run in almost every day. It has shaped the contours of my thought. It's formed my soul. And uh, it's, if I have a, Jim, if I have a creative moment, a moment of needed insight, it's often when I'm running in that beautiful park. Wow. 
Wow, that's great. And the last rapid fire question, this is something that we're adding to this list of questions. What's one small thing that you do each day that has the most significant effect on the fruitfulness of your work? I don't, I'm not sure I do it every day, not to be too technical. Sure, sure. Almost every day. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say it's reading the Psalms and reading the Wall Street Journal. Wow. I think those at, the, at a similar time. Well, sometimes they're right together or close wow. by, depending on how much time I have early in the morning. But I often spend the Psalms are the companion in my soul, and they have been mm. all my life, and they're increasingly important to me. And the Wall Street Journal at least gives me a picture of of the world I live in, the world I'm called to serve uh, on a daily basis. I'd say those two things. Mm. You know, just to follow up on that, how does reading the Wall Street Journal affect your reading of the Psalms, and vice versa? Well, it profoundly does because I, w- I would say number one is when I read the Wall Street Journal in all dimensions, I realize how broken and how fearful and how overwhelming and how fragile the world I live in is. And then mm-hmm. I go to the Psalms to understand that there is someone who's not fragile, <laughs> not, mm-hmm. not broken, and um, that, uh, that he is my shepherd mm-hmm. and, and guides me, you know, so I... And, and the lover of my soul. So the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, for example, was a psalm not just for death and hard times. It's a it's life-giving every moment to live in this world that is so broken and yet be guided by the shepherd and know that you're in good hands. Hmm. Well, I want to jump into a little discussion on your book, The Economics of Neighborly Love. But yeah. before I do that, I'd love to hear the origin story of Made to Flourish, why this organization exists. I know that many people many cities throughout the country are being blessed deeply through the work of Made to Flourish, even when they don't know about Made to Flourish because their pastors are being formed and nourished by Made to Flourish, and then the congregations are thriving. But can you tell us a little bit about the story of how it came to be? Yeah, I'm really encouraged, Jim, by just your summary of how God is using it. I mean, that that encourages my soul and my heart today. But yeah, I mean, I am a part of the origin of the story. I mean, not to take out God's providence and His His focus and His adequacy and His glory. But yeah, I mean, when I see the story of Made of Flowers, I've been there from the very beginning. And its conception, its uh, fragile launch, its entrepreneurial energy, and where it is for almost four years uh, on a national level. But I would say the big part of the story is that, uh, from my vantage point, it's come out of my story of my own failure. And often, God gets the greatest glory, uh, it seems to me, when it comes out of our weakness. I mean, the, path, the train of weakness is the path that God often uses most for our own transformation in the world. And so my own path of weakness, the train of weakness, was I had a massive Sunday to Monday gap in my thinking as a pastor, and I've used the language of pastoral malpractice, and coming out of out of that, of not discipling people for the majority of their life, to miss this rich vocational theology. I wrote a book called Work Matters that thrust me briefly into a national conversation. You know, I was extruded into this national conversation. And in that national conversation, I began to realize I wasn't the only one who had really missed something important for the gospel mission in the world. Many, many other people were saying the same thing, not only about their own life, but their church. So again, that led to many things, many people coming together, bringing intellectual capital, financial capital, leadership capital to launch Made to Flourish. And with the goal of helping pastors and local church leaders really more effectively integrate faith, work, and economic wisdom for the flourishing of their congregations and their communities. 
And it is our humble attempt to join in what God is already doing, because the wind of the Spirit is blowing across our nation to renew the church and to really, truly live into fully whole life discipleship. So yeah, I've had the joy of being in a, being a part of it, and I still continue to serve it. And I think there's been a wonderful flywheel momentum the last four years of seeing this make a difference across the country in pastors' lives, congregation leaders' lives, and churches around the country. And I know, Jim, you're a part of that and influenced mm-hmm. by that, and you've spoken into it, and I'm grateful for that. So it's it's just trying to catch the tail end of the Holy Spirit flowing across our nation for the renewal of the church and focusing on its mission to really disciple people for every dimension of life. Yeah, yeah. The thing I love about that is how it flows from this moment of clarity mm-hmm. of of uh, the pastoral malpractice and needing to attend to these yeah. things. And I think for our listeners out there, th- that's important to highlight because there are those moments, those moments of decision, really, when you can either stifle that level of conviction or lean into it and trust God. And who could have ever imagined that out of that, something like Made to Flourish would have grown. And it's certainly God that is doing it, is growing it, but you know, he has used you as his instrument in that. And so I want to honor that and kind of hold that up as an example. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jim. It's exciting to be a part of what God's doing. Isn't it it a marvelous mystery and joy to think that the God of the universe invites us into this story and that we're a part of it. So yeah, well, let's talk about the book, this book. I love this book. I wrote a little review of it and talked about some of the reasons why I love this book, because I have faith and work friends and I have friends who care about addressing poverty. And this is a book that we can all read together and understand each other's hearts in it. So I want to, I was curious, why did you write the economics of neighborly love? Well, I like the emphasis of why did you talk? (laughs) I mean, this is a surprise. So let me just give you a little bit of context. This book uh, I was asked to write hmm. in the sense that it wasn't something I ever imagined writing, nor did I aspire to it. Hmm. Uh, I found myself, Jim, in uh, a broader national conversation after Work Matters. And Work Matters, again, was my first attempt to, to help congregational people, your extraordinary, ordinary disciple of Jesus, okay, mm-hmm. understand work's intrinsic value, its missional opportunities, and to see how important their work is, and to redefine work, not just in terms of compensation, but contribution. So there are some major things I was trying to do there. And in that response, I mean, it was the first really major national book written by a pastor. I think it was 2010. There are other good books now. But from a pastor's seat, the importance of individual work and the importance of that in local church life And so in that, I'm just saying, Jim, what happened was that response of that book placed me in a national conversation and put me in a conversation not only with pastors and business leaders, but also theologians and economists. Hmm. And in that conversation, in God's providence, as the one pastor in that circle, we we began to realize that most of the writing on work was primarily individual focused. It wasn't communal. Mm. What was needed was to a thoughtful, hopefully scholarly pastor moving from biblical text, from theology, to responsibly making a bridge to modern economic life. So that was the goal of the Economics of Neighborly Love 
and how it emerged and people saying, Tom, you need to write this book because you can bridge strong exegesis and biblical theology with a pastor's heart, with a very gentle ecumenical spirit, nonpartisan, but also be responsible with modern economic theory. You know, I'm not an economist. I have a background in some of that, but I've been tutored, but I wanted to make sure I was responsible. So that's the idea is to help pastors, Christian leaders bridge from strong theology to modern economic reality and address the issues of, of capacity and injustice and poverty and so forth. And to make the case that human flourishing and economic flourishing are tied together. Yeah, yeah. That's huge. I actually want to pivot to a playful hypothetical question that I like to ask to most people who have written good books. And that's it, that I want you to imagine if for some reason it became illegal to have books with multiple chapters and you could only preserve one chapter of this book, which, which one would you choose? My hunch would be probably chapter one. And the reason I say that is because it is in chapter one. Now, I'm going to reinforce more the persuasive logic of the book after that. But it's really setting the thesis of the book. And it's centered in Luke chapter 10 and Jesus teaching on the great commandment and his teaching through the parable of the Good Samaritan. So fundamentally, I would say chapter one, because chapter one gives us the thesis of the book. And that is that when we have compassion without capacity we have human frustration. When we have capacity, right, without compassion, we have human alienation. When we have capacity and compassion together, we have neighborly love, we have human transformation. So I, I would say chapter one frames it in Luke chapter 10 in the great commandment theologically, and then lays out the thesis of the importance of compassion and capacity as it relates to loving our neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Well, I notice you rooted in Jesus's command to love our neighbor as ourselves, but Oftentimes, people might find the, the pairing of economics and love as an odd pairing. Maybe they might even think that they're both important, but how is economic wisdom and economic activity a means by which we can love our neighbors and obey Jesus' command? Yeah, that's a really big and comprehensive question. Hmm. What I would say, a couple of things I would say is that we need to understand economic wisdom and economic realities, even though they are broken, in the context of God's original design of how God created us to be fruitful. Hmm. Uh, and so I would go back, first of all, to Genesis 1 and understand that as humans, we are made in the image of a God who is fruitful and a worker. And he gives us the cultural mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and notice, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. The heart of that idea uh, the first imperative in the Hebrew text here is para, which means to be fruitful. And fruitfulness in the Torah and the Old Testament has a sense of both procreativity and productivity. That means being human is involved with being procreative in our mission. That's having babies. But it's not just that. It's productivity. It's fruitfulness. It's cultivating blessing out of the creative order for the good of others and the glory of God. So in the very early chapters of Genesis, the idea of adding value, blessing others, which is a foundational idea of economic activity, right? When economics, we add value, and sometimes that value is monetized for easy exchange and for efficiency. So I'm just saying the idea of economic, sometimes we have a lot of bad baggage with that idea, but it's really woven into the fabric of scripture. Let me just give one example too. For think of, let's yeah. just put it all the way forward to the epistles. When the apostle Paul, Rabbi Paul, talks about the gospel, in Ephesians, a powerful text, right, of the gospel in the church, right, Jim? It's like, but then he makes a transition in chapter four and talks about the implications of the gospel, how the gospel speaks in every nook and cranny. And in Ephesians four, for example, you know, there's 
the language, our language, for example, changes with the gospel, but not only our language, our economic life. Just give me one example. And I think it's a midrash or a commentary of Luke chapter 10, personally. Mm. But he mm. says, think of this one verse in, in 428. It says, let the thief no longer steal, right? Think about it. the implications mm. of the gospel profoundly changes economic life because the thief is taking value, right? It's, it's value extraction. So the, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work with his hands, toiling in labor so that, here's the inferential construction, so that he may have opportunity to give to anyone in need. So what Paul is saying is the gospel profoundly transforms our economic life from thievery, from value extraction to value add, and that is monetized in an economic context that creates capacity for us to love, other, love others. So I can't even imagine even that little verse is so filled with economic wisdom and its connection to the gospel and to neighborly love. Just that one verse captures how the gospel profoundly transforms economic life and how it connects to loving others. Notice that text says not just to a, you know, a person in the church, but to anyone who has need. And of course, if you're going to do it, you have to have capacity to do that. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's there. We just miss it. Yeah. And so you you use this phrase, which I love, is compassion needs capacity if we are to care well for our neighbors. Can you unpack what that means a little bit? Like, why is compassion not enough to love our neighbors well? Well, one of the most, it's a great question. One of the most compelling answers to that question or response to that question is to look at how Jesus frames the great command of Luke 10. So you remember the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan highlights both the Samaritan's compassion, right? He, he sees the other across all racial lines and bigotry, unlike the priest and Levi. Most people know the story. And he gets off his mount. He goes and cares for that person who's noticed been robbed, beaten, and left dead by the road. But again, not only does he offer, does he have the physical capacity, that, right? He can have compassion, but sit on his mount right? Or his horse or donkey. He has the physical capacity to take physical incarnational action to offer first aid, right? That's, that's part of capacity. I mean, right. Mm -hmm. if, if he didn't have physical capability, he couldn't wash this person's wounds, but it's more than that because he not only has the compassion of his physical presence, his incarnational touch, but he has the capacity notice to take him to an inn, which was a, a financial reality. And not only that, he has the financial capacity to say, hey, here's my visa card. You know, I'm going to cover this guy's cost as long as he needs to. Now, again, where does that capacity come from, right? I mean, this guy needed hospitalization. He needed care, and it required monetary funds. So how did yes. he get that? He got that through his daily work, uh, mm. monetized in the first century economy. So, again, we miss the importance of that. And I just want to say that love our neighbor today is not just taking them soup when they're sick. It's really involved in the work we do in a global economy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Samaritan had his donkey or his animal, uh, yeah. whatever it was, had some oil, had some wine. Right. right. <laughs> Those are the, that's the capacity for the Samaritan. What would you say is like, what's the oil and wine and donkey of our day? Well, that is a really great question. First of all, I would say it's time. It's attentiveness. It's time. Yeah, it's time. It's attentiveness versus distraction for lots of reasons for us, right? I mean, we, we can be so distracted, we do not have the capacity of attentiveness, hmm. uh, nor do we have the capacity of time, but it also often has a financial or monetized capacity to meet needs. And I think, you know, there's an example that John says, if you see a brother in need, right, uh, and do not meet that need in a very tangible way, how can the love of God reside in you? 
So, I mean, part of that is living a financial life where there's margin to meet needs beyond yourself. Hmm. Uh, and so, right, that's, that's an economic reality. That's hard work, value adding. It's perhaps saving, spending well, right? I mean, to create extra or margin to really meet a need to, to care for others in a very tangible way. Absolutely. Well, I wonder if you could tell us some stories or some examples of people or things or projects or any of those sorts of things that kind of give us a picture of what economic wisdom looks like. Well, I think it is profoundly seamless. Hmm. So what I mean by that is that Wisdom is not only timeless, right, Jim? It's seamless. Hmm. And it pushes against bifurcation, compartmentalization, reductionism. Wisdom has a sense that it permeates the loves of our heart, the contours of our mind, the habits we practice every day. So if you apply that to everyday life, you can apply that to, for example, I have a delightful physical neighbor, I mean, across our home where we live. And Jenna and her husband are amazing, amazing couple. They love Christ, which I'm grateful for. They have a beautiful family and they're involved with so many different kinds of things from her selling real estate to her taking the kids to school for his work in a pharmacy. But I mean, I'm just saying in a, as a family unit, they are raising their children. They are serving their community. They're a part of a local church community. They are living what I call a very seamless kind of existence. And I think that's a beautiful picture. And I'm not giving you a picture of a CEO or a, or a plumber. I'm just giving you an example of my immediate neighbors who are living more and more into this kind of life where there's a seamlessness about family, neighbor, their work together, their economic life, their philanthropy, their service. I mean, I just, when I see that, I see that's the kind of life that I think pictures this timeless wisdom and this seamlessness of the biblical vision of a flourishing life. In this mm. case, raising children right now in their season of life, their family, their marriage, their neighborhood, their city, their work. It's truly a beautiful picture of what I think God intends for people to flourish. And again, they're a vital part of a faith community, uh, a neighborhood community. They're part of our city, and they have you know, a certain global reach. I mean, Scott just got back from Africa. He's building a school there. So it just it's a picture to me. I'm just giving you an immediate picture next door of how I see this lived out. Yeah, absolutely. So if, you know what, I'm going to pivot a little bit and ask a little out of the box question. If I could throw out some problems in the world, maybe you could help us understand how those things might be a little bit better if there was an increase in economic wisdom. So let me go ahead and start with, I'll start with a lack of employment. So how would that get better if there was an increase in economic wisdom? A lack of employment opportunities. What's needed, again, when we have unemployment, without economic wisdom, what we have then is we have a disconnect. I mean, we have a disconnect between people's capacity and opportunity, right? I mean, they want if they want to work, uh, they want to contribute. So economic wisdom would say, how do I help or come alongside or provide systemic structures or opportunities how can I nourish opportunities where their contribution can meet that opportunity? So, for, for example, one of the things I would say in unemployment is what does it say about entrepreneurial spirits and entrepreneurial activity to help, you know, create value-based companies and jobs to create these opportunities for that, 
person to be gainfully employed. So I'm just saying that that is a person who's deeply committed from an economic wisdom standpoint to create capacity. How do you do that, right? Because people, they have gifts, abilities, sometimes they need more training, more opportunities. Sometimes they have a lot of uh, personal issues that hinder them in, in that value add. But I'm just saying economic wisdom would say it's not just enough to hand them a piece of bread. Now, you need, need to do that if they're really hungry. But it's to provide them dignity and opportunity to make a meaningful contribution. And that's going to require risk, entrepreneurial activity, uh, capital, and that sort of thing. So wisdom looks at the long haul. It looks at the value of the human being, the dignity of that, the importance of systemic structures. And it has a long time horizon. It's not a short-term deal. So there's much more I could say than that. But, but I think in unemployment, wisdom speaks into the importance of employment. It helps create opportunity for employment. It helps seek to build capacity for unemployment. And it affirms the importance of everyone contributing, having dignity versus just an immediate relief opportunity. Mm, okay, let's pivot a little bit and maybe talk about the loneliness that is being experienced in a pretty pervasive way throughout uh, the country. I think that that's a, an issue that comes up a lot with people in their congregations, with pastors, with many other types of people. And there are a lot of ways of addressing that. But how might economic wisdom actually decrease some of the loneliness that's being felt in the country? I do think it's one of the paradoxes of our times, Jim, is that we've never been more connected through the information age and also more isolated. Hmm. Many, many people are talking about that. Where economic wisdom, I think, would speak into it. I'm going to use Viktor Frankl's framework here, but Frankl is so brilliant in understanding that humans are meaning-seeking creatures. Fundamentally, we seek meaning, and he gets us out of Torah in three ways. In the work we do, the relationships we have, and the suffering we encounter. And when you think about that matter of loneliness and meaning, Think about why economic wisdom and economic life and our mutual contribution and the intersection of work fits all three of those realities, right? So we have relationships outside of our economic life or our work life, and we do different kinds of tasks outside of that, hmm. and we experience suffering outside of that. But the intersection of all three relationships, contribution or work or suffering profoundly intersects in economic life and the work we do every day. So yeah. saying isolation is a big part, the workplace and the economic contribution and cooperation we have in an economic world provides that space of meaning, both in the work we do and the suffering or the difficulty we overcome, but also the relationships we enjoy in that work context. So one of the great ways I think economic wisdom speaks is the sense of the importance of relationships in our economic life and in the workplace and our contribution. That's one of the greatest places for friendship, for cooperation, for deep meaning and friendship, and not isolation. Mm, that's really good and really profound. I have no idea where you were going to go with that because I'm just pulling this out of, out of thin air, and that's know. really important. All right, last one. This one's ratcheting it up a little bit. <laughs> okay. But um, the political polarization that's being experienced in the world right now how might that be diminished and there'd be a greater sense of peace uh, in this realm if there was more economic wisdom? Jim, I think uh, economic wisdom speaks incredibly and profoundly and, and timely in our greater polarization. Because as humans, we live in an economic context. 
Uh, it's a big part of our day. From the moment we wake up in the morning, we live in an economic world. And the political realities fill in those spaces because there's different perspectives, there's different values, there's different challenges. All I have to say is that if we have economic wisdom from scripture, we understand that economic flourishing and human flourishing has many dimensions to it, and they are all important. We don't have a single portal we look through. So what often happens in political polarization is there's such a high emphasis on one aspect to the sort of ignoring of another, right? It's like mm -hmm. wealth inequality. You know, that should matter to all of us if it's, you know, like it is today. What does that mean if you are more conservative or more progressive? Well, you might approach it differently, but to realize that that's not ideal. What's the solution, right? Or certain systemic economic injustices, poverty alleviation, job creation, the importance of incentive, dignity. I mean, so what I'm just saying, when we think about the economic challenges, whether it's those who are under-resourced, whether they're systematic uh, uh, obstacles for access, whether you know, whatever that would be, the Bible gives and wisdom gives a comprehensive assessment of the different factors that should come into play with a sense of respect and importance in that economic political conversation. The danger is there's focus on two or three at the expense of the other, often in polarized political realities. All of them matter. It's just how do we get a greater flourishing in that? Absolutely. And sticking in with that theme, sticking with that theme, I'll ask one more question on, on that kind of ratcheted up level, and then we'll kind of bring it down to the tangible. But the phrase economic justice or economic injustice is a very contested and controversial phrase today because on one hand, there are many people who have a disdain for this very biblical idea and, and think it comes from socialism or something like that. And on the other hand, there are people who might affirm the realities of systemic economic injustice, but also would affirm a lot of ideologies and practices that might contradict biblical wisdom. It seems like these are the two buckets that we got to choose from. Uh, what advice do you have for navigating this polarized discussion and look at the the idea of economic injustice? Yeah, Jim, again, this is a really good and timely question. I guess if, if people have a common ground of the authority or the importance of the biblical tradition and message, then... The idea of economic, as you alluded to, the idea of economic injustice is a major theme in the Old Testament, particularly as prophets are called to bring change to God's covenant people. So I'm just saying the theme of economic injustice is so central to the prophetic books, particularly the Old Testament. I have a hard time when people say that doesn't matter if they have a commitment to Scripture. I mean, I'm just... To me, that is such an important thread. So with all due respect, I would say it is a thread. And if all of Scripture matters and speaks into our life, then we need to take it seriously. So, I mean, that's where I would say without moving right, left, whatever ideology, I think the Scriptures do address and speak greatly about God's concern for economic injustice. I mean, the simplest thing is Proverbs about scales in the Old Testament, scales that are, you know, crooked, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from that very basic idea that we know throughout history, the fall and sin 
finds many different companions, but one of the main ones throughout history is economic oppression, economic abuse, and justice in that area. So I would just say that's the first thing. The question is, how do we see present injustices through an economic lens? How do we deal with past economic injustice and its residual effect today? And, and, and what do we do in a wise way moving forward? And I think that's where, right? I think that's where there's greater difference. Like what's, what's the best way to get to greater human flourishing and economic flourishing? And that's where I think the focus should be with all due respect. What is best as a society moving forward to address economic uh, injustice, uh, lack of resource, opportunity. I mean, I think that's where the focus should be. Mm. But I think that's yeah. probably a challenge. It gets hoodwinked sometimes without, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about the biblical vision of economic wisdom. If people wanted to immerse themselves in scripture, where would you direct them to really reflect on economic wisdom in scripture? Just give us a couple places that they might start. I mean, I would start first and foremost with the early chapters of Genesis, because that's mm. the foundation of everything. And then I'd probably, if, if you push me in a corner, I'd probably say the book of Proverbs, because the book of Proverbs highlights, again, it's, an, it's a different kind of economic system. So we have to translate it to a modern economic system, but the principles are timeless. And so I think the book of Proverbs in particular is probably one of the best places, at least to get a sampling of the kind of matters that economic wisdom must address. Hmm. Yeah, one side is lack of you know work diligence. The other side is you know scales that are crooked, that abusing the poor, you know that kind of thing, or wealth uh, obtained fraudulently. I mean these kind of things. They're all over the Book of Proverbs. Absolutely, yeah. So when people read your book, as you were writing, what would you say were some of the tangible actions that you were hoping people might take after reading? I would say that there would be a greater curiosity about how God has positioned them in his providence, in their gifts, to truly add value to the broken world in which they find themselves. Hmm. So I want them to reimagine that loving their neighbor is primarily where God has called them every day in their paid or unpaid work. And to love their neighbor, I mean, it's not so much tangible, but love their neighbor both locally and globally. And that's one thing it's just it stuns me about the time in which we live is that through the modern economy and the modern economy, global economy has its problems. I'm not minimizing that, but it's an amazing opportunity to love our neighbor globally that I don't know any Christians in human history have ever had the possibility of his have this global reach to love their neighbor. When mm. you think about it, right? I mean, so it's as likely for people in my congregation when I speak to them on Sunday to be loving their neighbor through their workplace in India as it is for their neighbor across the street. This is stunning today when we think about the opportunities to truly love our neighbor and to see the work we do every day and the value we bring in a global economy as a profound way I love my neighbor every day. I want people to realize that the great commandment greets them every day when they walk into their workplace. Hmm. That is stunning, indeed. You can see that anytime you look in the tag of your clothes. Yes. Wherever those clothes came from, whoever did that good work is uh, keeping you from some very awkward encounters. <laughs> Great way to say it. Yeah. Yes. Um, They're loving so, us too. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Exactly. Exactly. So a final question, another playful hypothetical. I want you to imagine that there are only three copies of the economics of neighborly love left in the world. And you could give them to three people 
And these three people are going to be people that you can sit down with for several weeks and read the book together and talk about those ideas. So who would you invite to your table? Who are the three people that you would want sitting together conversing about these things? Well, you are probably going to be surprised at my answer, Jim. You think? Yeah. I don't know. But I mean, I would I would think that being a pastor and this vocation, I would say I would want a pastor to be there. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's number four. (laughs) Here's what I would say. Uh, Three people that I would want, and I would just frame a vocation. One is an artist, one is a stay-at-home spouse, and one is a business leader. What Mm -hmm. I mean by that is an artist is, in many ways, on a positive, positive sense, they are, you know, the early scouts of culture. In a negative sense, they're the canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. So, Art, an artist, I would probably want to read it first. Secondly, yeah. a stay-at-home spouse or a mom, you know, I really do believe that the family is profoundly transformational. And so a stay-at-home dad or mom, however you want to say it, you know, the old statement was, and again, before kind of modern times, the, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And mm. I would want a mom or a dad raising a family to read it. And then lastly, a business leader, I think of a Bill Gates or a Melinda Gates or somebody like that that has incredible success and capacity to see how God has positioned them to bring such goodness to the world. Hmm. That's profound. I am really grateful for your thoughtful answers, for your time, and for the good work you do, Tom. Thanks for being on the podcast. It was a great privilege. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe or on our website at tempe.redemptionaz.com. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast or our church by emailing tempe at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week.